0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. John, myself, Gaddy is Mr. Isa. Now, I don't often quote from IMDb, but I think that it is relevant in this instance. I'm going to overlook the suggestion that the Whackers is actually a sequel to the Squirrels. It isn't. <gasps> what? How did they get <laughs> it that? It says connections follows the Squirrels, 1974. <laughs> no. Second of all. We have a review, written in 2003, by Mike Hill 38 Now, this is his considered opinion, which three out of 16 people found useful. This truly appalling comedy from a bygone era when it was politically correct to broadcast jokes about a particular Uh, race or creed.
1: Immediately! Now,
0: I think he's misunderstood political correctness because it's not like political correctness was actually turned on its head at some point in the 1980s. Political correctness came about in the 1980s. He also adds... In this case, it concerns the daily antics of a working-class Scouse family, which featured Keith Chegwin as the son prior to his playing pop and appearing starkers on a Channel 5 quiz show. Enough said? Well, actually, Mike. No! No! Not enough said. This week, we're going to discuss The Whackers, which, as I alluded to earlier on, seven episodes made, only six shown, written by Vince Powell, starring Ken Jones and Sheila Faye, Mr. and Mrs., as it happens, and also featuring the aforementioned Keith Chegwin, Alison Steadman, a couple of years away from Abigail's Party, and sitcom club favourite, Joe Gladwin. Now, I'm going to lay my whack, so to speak, on the table, straight away, and say that I really enjoyed this. Now, this was, I've got to admit, that this is one of my little sort of collectibles. I first read about the Whackers about sort of 20 years ago or so, because I had a TV Times which mentioned it, and I thought, "Cor, this sounds like fun. And a couple of years back, it was released by Network on DVD. And so that's where we saw it, in this instance. Some of Vince Powell's stuff I like. Some of it is a bit sort of cringy and what have you. But no, I really enjoy The Wackers. I thought it was first class. I'm not ashamed to say so.
1: Well, by reputation, I think you were hoping of revisiting The Nelly Well. Oh,
0: God, yes. no, we're got- You were
1: hoping to get something that was so end of the pier, in fact, in the sea. It's worth coming back to the Radio Times Guide to Comedy, which has an entry on the Whackers that ends on the words, the Whackers was not a success and audiences grew tired of its incontinence jokes, (laughs) which I know we were discussing what happens in this. Is it just 25 minutes of Ken Jones bursting (laughs) and letting it flow in inconvenient places? (laughs) Didn't we devise a whole title sequence, which was the entire family kept using the toilet. He was distracted and he couldn't get in. <laughs> and also we'd assumed rather foolishly that somehow the family was going to be called the Whackers. And we kept referring to Ken Jones' character as Pa Wacker. <laughs>
0: If you're familiar with the American 90s sitcom Blossom, imagine that with Ken Jones in the role as Blossom and all the other characters wander in and then distract him and then go into the WC. Not that they do that in Blossom, but
1: you know what I mean. wasn't Blossom's grandfather Hobo? Was he? Yes.
0: Oh, no, her father was... I've
1: completely forgotten his name. Barnard something. Her father was
0: the new Pink Panther after
1: Peter Sellers. His father was Hobo. From hobos, a oh, hobos Christmas. That's it. No, you've, you've, title.
0: you've got to tell people what you had yesterday in a restaurant.
1: I had a hobo omelette, <laughs> <laughs> had bacon and vegetables, cheese in it. No,
0: that's not your nickname for it. That's actually what it said on the menu.
1: Yes, fantastic.
0: This needs to be a whole chain. This needs to be a whole brand of all these hobos items. This can actually be a shop, like Poundland.
1: Anyway, we weren't just going off the Radio Times comedy guide description there did seem to be a reputation hanging over it, that it was just base vulgarity that the British public were not able to handle, and therefore it ended an episode early.
0: Right, so if you've seen the first episode of Casanova 73, for reasons, Leslie Phillips is repeatedly running into the bathroom and flushing the toilet. That is what I wanted this to be for about 25 minutes. I didn't really actually want it to be too dialogue heavy, to be honest. I wanted it to be a largely visual comedy, one that perhaps could have sold well in other countries. But I was at first disappointed. But I've got to be honest, that the first time I saw it, it was like, oh, it, it's it's just normal. Oh. But then I started getting into it and yeah, by the end of it I was rather hooked. That being said, it is vulgar. It is vulgar, but I think that it's a nice form of vulgarity. It's not an off putting form of vulgarity. It's sort of earthy realistic working-class dialogue.
1: I don't know about you, though. I found after a while the scouseness got a bit wearing.
0: Maybe that's just me. It didn't annoy me as much as something like bread, which really got my nerves. I couldn't tolerate that.
1: There's one thing I can't stand. It's cities that have two famous football teams that break down on (laughs) Catholic-Protestant lines, and the people from that city keep talking about how amazing the city is.
0: (laughs) Now, I'm not going to rise to the bit. And I think you should leave Edinburgh of this, be perfectly honest. Right. Okay, so we did a little bit of research ahead of this. And I was expecting to find the tabloid newspaper absolutely full of just scandal. This filth must end! Yeah, I was thinking it was going to be like Hardwick Weckagate. House. Well, Okay, so because the, 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 you keep on hearing about how supposedly shows have caused an outrage in the tabloid. Now, I would need to check as far as OTT is concerned. I do have memories of fairly high-profile stories about Hardwick House in the papers in '87. As far as the Whackers was concerned, there really isn't much there as far as I can tell. Unless somebody's got access to a digital archive of the Sun. And if you do, let us know because that's the one digital archive that so far alludes us. I don't think it actually exists anywhere. But there were some reviews in the Express, in the Mirror, and so on. Some for it, some against it, and there were some letters from people saying, oh, this is not what Scousers are like, and other people saying, oh, yes, it is, and so on. and what well, It all seemed to be a bit of a, a phony outrage. And then there was just quite reference to the fact that Thames had dropped the last episode.
1: Okay, that's the first big thing that shocked me. Thames?
0: Yes. Now, I must admit that I do have something of an attraction to... Sitcoms, which are produced by companies far and away out with the area in question—that's topic, the subject matter. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a James Nesbitt pilot that went out, and it was all about Northern Ireland and so on. It's made by Carlton, and you do occasionally get these little instances where it's like, "Hang on a minute, what are they what are they doing encroaching in, in this territory?" So it that surely... being
1: said, I can't see Granada making this show.
0: No, it's not really Granada type show, is it?
1: Can you name me some Granada sitcoms? Cuckoo Waltz. Okay.
0: Nearest and dearest, of course.
1: Okay, now I can, actually no, sorry, I can see Granada making this <laughs> show in that case.
0: But would you say that not in your Nelly is slightly more robust and raucous than nearest and dearest?
1: No, I wouldn't. Remember, Nearest and Dearest does have a joke where Joe Gladwin is disappointed because he's been denied the opportunity to expose himself.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, for all we know, Vince Powell might have approached Granada with this, first of all, and they turned it down because they were making some worthy documentary or whatever, like they usually were. Well, he
1: he and Harry Driver had written Coronation Streets.
0: Yeah, I mean, Vince Powell had been writing, was still writing, Love, My Neighbour for Thames at this point, and he'd previously written Never mind the quality, feel the width, and George and the Dragon for Tim's predecessor. So, yeah, I suppose that there was a possibility here this could be another bank, or this could be another series that would just run and run. And I'm a little bit puzzled, in all honesty, as to why it went down as badly as it did, because I didn't really see anything in this that I thought was going to be just unacceptable for the viewers.
1: Okay, I think I can. It's too old-fashioned and too modern. You have Ken Jones and and certainly Joe Gladwin representing a certain oh, youngsters these days, oh, what's it all about worldview with a great deal of vulgarity. I'd just written some keywords down here, and I I really should have done better because here I've just got the words queer, thingy, endowed. I think that's because they do have a whole section where, oh, they're talking about vasectomy or Birdie's Favourite, as I believe (laughs) it's not known. they talking about the vasectomy, and I hear it makes you go queer. They're going to cut a bit off me thingy. I'm not that well endowed to begin with. It seems kind of raw, in a way, even something like nearest and dearest, which is vulgar, but not quite so bold. Well, don't forget this went out at half past nine, and that fact has been trailed ahead
0: of time. It is meant to be post-Watershed.
1: Certain parts of it have an old-fashioned way of looking at things, and... There's a frankness that I think is more in keeping with the younger end of the world. I think it falls down between those two stools, really. It's like a franker, bolder, rawer, bless this house. They talk about sex and toilet functions a lot, and in less guarded ways than other shows of the time. Isn't this the first thing Vince Powell wrote since the death of Harry Driver?
0: No. After Harry Driver's death, Vince Powell continued to write, Love Thy Neighbour solo.
1: Is it his first new project?
0: I think you might be right there.
1: Right, and yeah, I knew there was something connected, so I'm just wondering if there's an attempt to be bolder, to evolve. You know more about Vince Powell than I do, yes? Well,
0: I'm quite familiar with his work.
1: Because, of course, he's got this bad rep based on Love Thy Neighbour and Mind Your Language.
0: It's certainly not unusual to have a sitcom from Vince Powell which is based around Isla background or ethnicity or whatever it may be
1: never mind the quality feel the width mm-hmm.
0: and of course later on, you had bottle boys
1: oh which
0: was hey okay. i suppose that's a, a wee bitty course and broad and what have you but meh maybe it's just me but i've come to appreciate vince powell's work more in these last few years i think that perhaps in years gone by i sort of just associated with him by reputation, it's like, offense oh, Vince Pauli, what's that bloody love neighbour and what have you? I've actually seen some love thy neighbour recently and obviously there's language and expressions in there which just wouldn't be used nowadays. And let's face it, we're still controversial even then. But in
1: terms of the show itself, I mean, it's not really that bad. It's setting out its stall to begin with that racism is bad and stupid. It's not making Eddie Booth
0: to be the protagonist. He's not supposed to be somebody that you are in sympathy with. Eddie Booth is a clown and he gets his comeuppance repeatedly. But I can understand, yeah, that even at the time that certain key words would cause offense and cause upset. You see that, for example, in something like In Sickness and Health in the mid-1980s. Even though Alf's views haven't changed considerably, the language that he uses certainly has and it's much more, you can call it tame, you can call it polite, whatever you want to call it, but it's certainly nowhere near as harsh as Told Death.
1: I'm just thinking we're never going to do Love Thy Neighbour, with the fact that we're only coming back for occasional specials. I think they're just other things higher on the agenda, things that are more weird, things that are more forgotten for us to talk about.
0: But they're going to do Love Thy Neighbour for that BBC retrospective next year, aren't they? <laughs>
1: Lucas and Walliams,
0: oh no. <laughs> Do you know what? Well, that's a really good point because I've been going through lots of, let's be honest about it, tat in the the flat recently. And amongst the bits and pieces that I found was a Christmas Radio Times. I think it's from 2005, I think it is. So every year, Come Fly With Me was on BBC. And there is this montage of all the characters that Lucas and Walliams are playing in this. And I'm thinking is this real? And I know it's real because I saw it. Everything's there. You know, the blacking up is there and the allusion to characters Jewish faith is there. There's a yellow face for Southeast Asian is there. The whole lot is there. And it's actually quite astonishing that that was commissioned in 2005. To be honest, I'm still not entirely sure how Little Britain and its spin-offs actually came to be. How they were given the green light.
1: Do you think there's a classist element to it? I'm sorry, I realise how precious that might sound. But do you think there's a certain extent that, oh, it's okay because I like these guys and they're my generation, they have an accent similar to mine, and we know better, so it's okay to make these jokes, whereas working-class people might not actually get it?
0: Let me draw one comparison between that and Loveline Neighbour. Okay, so you've got, occasionally, you you do have the odd episode where Eddie blacks up for some convoluted reason. So it's not true to say that that kind of thing never happened in, in the show, but it's not as if... Yeah, compare that then with Matt Lucas playing Precious in Come Fly With Me. Now, there doesn't seem to be any kind of hidden meaning in that. There doesn't seem to be anything where it's you know, oh, you're not getting it. You're not getting the irony of the situation. It's just Matt Lucas blacking up, and playing a black woman, for these sketches, for these skits. To me, that's sort of worse than something like Love Thy Neighbor, where you've got two black actors, two white actors.
1: If Love Thy Neighbor, well, yeah, been- th- that's another thing. It's like I think Rudolph Walker, who said himself he doesn't regret it, he wouldn't do it now. He wouldn't do it. I think maybe the interview I saw was 20 years ago, so he's saying he wouldn't have done it in the 90s. But I think Rudolph Walker and Nina Ben-Semper would have known if they were being played for fools to give them credit for their work. I think I'd love Thy Neighbor, but it's sloppy. It sometimes gets the laugh it pretends not to be going for. There's a little bit of having its cake and eating it. But there's no doubt that it's about bigotry rather than bigoted itself. It's just not doing a careful enough job of bringing people together and well there you go we're talking about the weckers but i just thought when we're talking about vince powell this is going to come into view and i think also another reason i wanted to talk about vince powell's old-fashioned reputation is the weckers is him trying to get to grips well, I say trying that makes it sound like he's not succeeding and i'm not an expert on that time but he's wrestling with the social mores the changing social mores of mid-70s Britain, and there's a modernity in here, which, again, I think is part of the reason it didn't go across. So I think the easiest thing to compare this to is Bless This House, but the kids are much more sexually frank than they are in Bless This House. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. just wanted to say one last thing about Vince Powell and ethnicity. I don't expect this to suddenly happen overnight, but I would argue that Vince Powell's work as dated as it might seem, holds up much more favourably than a lot of Spike Milligan's post good work, Because I don't think that you can make the same argument about the intentions behind something like, say, The Melting Pot or The Jewel in the Crown. That to me seems to be ethnicity just for pure laughs. I don't think there's actually some particular social point that's being made in this. But Again, it's not as if nobody's ever commented on that before but I suspect that Spike Milligan, because he's rightly lauded for his work early in his career, it's not as if he's giving a free pass on those things later on but I don't really see anybody advancing an argument for saying, okay, but well, what's Vince Powell's real objective behind this and so on? And I don't see anything from Vince Powell's pen that's as crass as something. like We've seen an episode of The Melting Pot and that was a bloody endurance test
1: i actually think it is trying to mock the differences between people i don't know i could talk all day about the melting pot and not really make the point that's in my mind it's very confused and going in different places there's an element of this word hurts people it shouldn't hurt people so why don't we just say it but then it comes to but it's still hurting people but why can't i say it eating your cake and having it
0: but it's worth talking about nonetheless, because, as you said, we're unlikely to ever actually get to a series like Loveline Neighbour on the sitcom club. So given we're talking about Vince Powell, talking about shows relating to... There's not
1: actually much rare stuff in The Whackers, is there?
0: Not particularly, no.
1: Remember The Whackers?
0: Uh, yes, I'm coming back to it. But you asked me about Vince Powell. It's
1: my fault. Oh, yes, absolutely, completely. Buck stops here, completely my fault for starting this derail.
0: Anyway, Bottle Boys. That was a laugh, no, Actually, I it?
1: did once have somebody say to me, Catholics are a race. That bit f- was odd for me. The sectarianism, I know it exists, but it felt weirdly out of time for me. I don't think we have it outside of certain hot spots.
0: I don't know. I'm just coming from the vantage point of somebody from Glasgow. I think that in certain areas, a mixed marriage between Catholic and Protestant would still be considered noteworthy by members of the local community, but it's far less likely to be an issue if it is an issue nowadays. I mean, particularly as you've got more and more cosmopolitan cities and also combined, I suppose, with the numbers of people who consider themselves to be of a particular faith, reducing, lessening, going down, whatever. You know what I'm like with less and fewer and so on. But if you're steeped in a particular tradition, if you're steeped in a particular background, then I guess it might raise some eyebrows, but it's... Communities these days... Just
1: say it, you support Partick, it's fine. (laughs) Everybody loves Kingsley.
0: I'm trying to find a nice way of saying that cities and even towns these days, they, they feel somewhat more fluid. They don't feel as fixed, as entrenched as they once were. I mean, I know there's still areas where I'll see Union Jacks flying, and... In different parts of the country and, you know, over in Northern Ireland and so on, you'll see Union Jacks in some areas and tricklers in other areas and so on. So I know it's not something which is been completely eliminated, but is it a broader outlook? Do people have a broader outlook these days as a result of technology? We can't talk about every nation on Earth, but for ourselves at least, the internet doesn't have any geographical boundaries. And that perhaps then leads people to expand the minds and perhaps go down all sorts of different sort of cul-de-sacs of niche interests and so on that weren't really available to you.
1: Have you been eating bits off the cactus?
0: No, I really haven't.
1: Just the other day I was going past the Subway sandwich shop here and the sign was black instead of green. (laughs) I thought, oh, don't say the old firm, have made it to Orange County.
0: (laughs) But you know what I mean? I mean, it's feasible to imagine that somebody in the mid-1970s, growing up in the same town that they've always been in, they've got a fairly entrenched view of the world and the people that they know perhaps hold similar views or they may know perhaps another community with slightly different views, but it's not quite the same as having a window on the entire planet.
1: It just felt weird for me because it's in colour. They're talking about Catholic and Protestant relations in the 1970s that sounds to me like the stories I heard about Catholic-Protestant relations in the 20s. Also, it then got a bit samey. There's a lot of, what, because he's a Catholic? No, because he plays for Everton or whatever. Maybe it's the other way around. Which is which?
0: Are you ready for conflict? Okay. I heard that deep breath you took there.
1: No, that deep breath is, oh God, we're going to talk about football. No,
0: no, no, nothing to do with football. Nothing to do with football. But I agree with you that perhaps like certain elements like the Everton-Liverpool rivalry...
1: Right, which is which, which is Catholic, which is Protestant?
0: This is an oddity because in the world of the Whackers, the Catholic team is Everton and the Protestant team is Liverpool. Now, I have to be honest and say that growing up sort of 15 years later or thereabouts, I was always led to believe that Liverpool were predominantly a Catholic team. I don't know, was there a lot of movement in in the 15 years or so in between? That was all in my understanding, but maybe I'm wrong about that. But nonetheless, I agree with you that the football talk might get a little bit repetitive
1: no it's just the kind of like oh is it difference a no it's difference b there's your joke
0: what i liked about this show which i found actually a little bit unusual but having looked back at a couple of vince powell sitcoms recently it's perhaps not all that unusual it's it's perhaps more to do with the fact that it's all truncated into these seven episodes there's a hell of a lot of movement between characters and their situation so we've got for example Billy, he starts the, the series in prison. Comes out, and his wife Mary has told the rest of the family that he's been away in the navy for the last couple of years. They all know that he's been.
1: In this prison. comes to your idea that this is a fake sequel to Porridge. This is parallel
0: universe going straight. I do like that idea, and all honesty, I, I like the idea that it would have just been horrible lives getting out. My indulgence, as far as that conceit was, a little bit compromised because you can see. Ken Jones marking off the numbers on the prison wall and the prison wall moves and it's clearly wallpaper to... to Oh,
1: there was a good one in Upstairs Downstairs the other day where prison wall shifted a few inches.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, I I did like the idea that it was... Horrible lives, but it didn't turn out like that. But no, you'd expect that the first episode of any series has got to have some sort of establishment of the status quo. So that makes sense. He's in prison, he comes out of prison. But actually, there's a hell of a lot of movement within the next few episodes. For example, Billy and Mary are having difficulty with relations, so to speak. And that's all resolved by the end of episode two. Billy is unemployed initially, then he gets a job, and he holds down the job. And the same job is then referred to in subsequent episodes. So there's little bits and pieces. You've also got, of course, Joe Gladwin and Pell Hackney. That was a bit odd because Joe is Mary's father and Pell Hackney is Billy's mother. And at first they can't stand each other. And by the end of the series are living in sin, as they put it,
1: have we actually mentioned that the family are divided along religious lines?
0: Yeah, well, that's what I was alluding to earlier One, It's a mixed marriage. Yeah, we
1: alluded to it. I don't think we actually went into any detail. Shall we tell everybody who's whom in the family? Yes. So Ken Jones is Billy Clarkson, former career criminal and now reformed character, trying to earn an honest wage and struggling with his Randy kids and his Randy father and his Randy self. His long-suffering wife, Mary, played by Sheila Fair. The real life, Mrs. Ken Jones. She has similar problems, and also I think she has a slightly higher standard. She cares a little bit more about how things look. And she's Catholic, and Billy is Protestant. Their children are Bernadette, played by Alison Stedman. And she's part of the whole sexual boldness, isn't she?
0: Yes, indeed. It also shows incredible range by Alison Steadman because she is supposed to be 18 in this. I think she's actually 28 at the time. Yeah, and you've also got Raymond, Keith Chegwin.
1: Hey! hey. Who's not a duffer at sports this time.
0: No, indeed. Yeah, and he doesn't have his robot with him, which is a shame. Bill Dean. Now, he's one of those people who keeps on turning up here, there and everywhere. And he's already been, along with Sheila Faye, he's already been in a number of episodes of The Live of which has been going since, was it 1971? I think it was. Again, did the Whackers suffer with comparisons to the Liverbirds?
1: Perhaps I'm not the expert. Was that a rhetorical question, or was I supposed to answer that?
0: I think that was more question to the listeners.
1: Obviously, <laughs> <laughs> will just, just let it hang in the air.
0: We also had David Casey as Randy's son Tony. <laughs> he turns up and gets into all manner of scrapes. He should have been robbed. Ah, but the with.
1: big thing about Tony is that, that he has been in further education, and now speaks with something approaching received pronunciation. In fact, he's quite posh. He's almost going into marked RP, and his father despairs of the fact that he don't talk like that. Wah.
0: So do, do you agree with RP? That was my rate. attempt
1: at a scouse accent, good, wasn't it?
0: There was something.
1: Last night, there was a Hollywood party, and there was Kerry going. <laughs> Judy, Judy, Judy. <laughs>
0: mm, you dirty rat. <laughs> More of that later. I can't
1: but- do... George Arliss in sound, unfortunately, you have to be able to see me for that to come across.
0: Well, we'll do that as a Christmas special, do a vodcast Christmas special. Okay, so do you agree with Arkwright when he suggests to Granville that one of the biggest threats to humanity today is the curse of the furlough education, along with BBC2?
1: I was expecting you to say BBC2, that's more what I associate with Arkwright as the thing that was really turning Granville's head.
0: The Whackers haven't even got a TV. But they do. Perhaps unusually for
1: 1975.
0: I know it hadn't been entirely eradicated, but it was perhaps becoming old fashioned, well, certainly becoming old fashioned. They've got an outside toilet. And this seems to be a focal point for much of the show. Did we talk in a previous sitcom club
1: about Middins? Eh? Middins Pardon? Middins. What what? What are you on about? Right. The bottom of the garden, you have a little outbuilding. It's where you keep the dustbins and the toilet, and it's called a midden. Now, where I grew up, a lot of the houses in the neighborhood still had the middens in the garden, but they were no longer in use. I think some people turned them into like little sheds. Oh, they kept the dustbin, the toilet was there just in case. (laughs) Just in case the indoor plumbing failed. In case
0: you get caught short.
1: There was still, well, I suppose he has also, you're trimming the hydrangeas and, uh, <laughs> oh! So, yes, I definitely remember Midden's I Ours didn't have one, our midden had gone. And my bedroom was smaller than it could have been because <laughs> a third of it had been taken up with the new indoor toilet. It wasn't new and <laughs> it was new to the house. I think it was there before my parents moved in.
0: I did once stay for about a year or so stayed in the property which had I suppose you would say it was a legit water closet because it was a room with just the toilet in it and the door to it it was entirely inside the, the flat but it was like a cupboard door it didn't look like the door to anything else other than a storage area and what I really liked about this was that it had a chain and had a proper old fashioned chain with a big handle on it you don't get them anymore do you and the bathroom the bath was an entirely separate room down the stairs. That was odd. So as we were no eh?
1: nothing. Nobody who wrote that sketch is from York, so the nearest is Timbrook Taylor and he's in Derbyshire. Practically the cut does your <laughs> He claims, I've heard him claim to be from the North. That's a question. Is Derbyshire the North?
0: It's the north as far as viewers in the southeast are concerned.
1: Or is there a big division? Why why couldn't the Whackers have been set in Derbyshire? Perhaps there's a big division between people from some town in the south of Derbyshire (laughs) that I haven't looked at, and people in Belper, who probably consider themselves northerners. The reason I've heard of Belper is I was looking up about Timothy Dalton, born in Wales, apparently grew up in Belper, and I was watching a Roy Clark film called Hawks that stars timothy dalton and he's really doing the northern accent i'm thinking actually no he does this when he's james bond there's a bit in license to kill where he's saying to somebody said oh it's a good job you turned up things are about to get a bit nasty
0: <laughs> belper was famously the constituency of george brown in the wilson government and <laughs> as of 1970 they didn't have color so they go. The, the local BBC didn't have colour anyway. I mean, they had colour reception, but you know what I mean, as far as why is this not set in Derbyshire or anything like that? I got this mad idea into my head. I was going to put forward this outrageous suggestion that Vince Pearl was from Liverpool, but I've just checked, and he wasn't. He was actually from Manchester, Miles Platting specifically. So that's why, of course, Eddie Booth in Love Neighbor is from Manchester and is a Reds fan. Do you want to have a guess as to what Vince Powell's autobiography is called?
1: Minding my language. (laughs) Loving my neighbour.
0: Bottling the boys. (laughs) Feeling the width.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's a game that could run and run.
0: Now, this is going to be a disappointment, though. It's actually called From Rags to Gags. And it has forwards from the great man himself, the Cryer, and also from Cilla Black. And I didn't even know until I was looking at this that there was a Finn's Power autobiography, so I'm going to have to get this now.
1: You might get the newspaper strip instead. <laughs> <laughs> Another thing worth mentioning when talking about architectural oddities, the front parlour. Well, I'm sure we've
0: discussed this on a previous podcast, the existence of the front room that never gets used.
1: My great aunt had a front parlour like that well into the 1980s. Mm-hmm.
0: And my dad's parents, they had a front room, which was never used. It was just immaculate, always. And it was exactly for that purpose. It was for visitors. And quite often it's associated with Dick Emery as the vicar. But the front room gets a little bit more use than the wackers, doesn't it? I mean, for all the talk about how they worry that the kids are you know, up to no good and what have you, They're quite sort of liberal when it comes to use of the front room, aren't they?
1: Well, going back to Bless This House, I think Sid James' son...
0: Robin Stewart just passed away recently.
1: ...and the character of Mike. My memory is is that he talked the talk a lot more than walking the walk about sex. He might have said, Oh, our generation has a completely different way of looking at things. But in this, you see Tony's girlfriend in her sexy shorty nighty, that... Casanova 73 would have had a conniption over
0: yeah and also the suggestion that he's been at it in the front room and finally it's like oh no no it's fine it's fine because they weren't it wasn't like that at all but actually it was like that and yeah that was a bit of a
1: a so again that's another point I think that it's jarring really would there have been a culture of 930 sitcoms on ITV
0: Not particularly, not really. Maybe
1: repeats of sitcoms at 9.30, but an actual, okay, this is post-Watershed ITV comedy. In the 70s, I don't really think that would have been something that was easy to market.
0: No, and given that at first glance, it doesn't look like anything which is particularly edgy as well. Like you were saying earlier on, it seems to be a meeting of two different types of audience. If this was some single-camera-on-film sort of business, then you'd sort of think, oh, it's something a bit different. You know, this is something a little bit curious. This went out at half past nine, and yet Kinvig went out at half past eight. I mean, surely that's just all wrong. I don't mean in terms of content. I just mean about Kinvig being weird. Surely Kinvig should have been on at half past nine. And have you
1: watched weird. all of Kinvig?
0: No. Well, shut up then. <laughs> have you watched all of Roots? Have you watched any of Roots?
1: We've never scheduled a discussion on Roots. We I'm pretty sure we had a scheduled discussion of Kinvig that never happened. I can't think of any other reason I would have watched all the episodes of Kinvig.
0: I know what you mean about yeah, an edgier version of Bless this House.
1: I mean there's still some fairly box standard double entendre. He slipped me one. What a bottle of stout. Okay, I'm not actually selling that with my (laughs) lack of brio in my delivery, but there's fairly typical jokes. Could probably edit this down to a quarter of an hour an episode of Not surprising ITV comedy.
0: There's one element of this which isn't really explored at all, and I'm not sure if it was ever really on the cards. Some of the advanced publicity for this says it's all a house of division because Billy is a Protestant, Mary is a Catholic, Billy supports Labour, and Mary is a Tory. I don't really remember any of that going on. I don't remember any political discussion.
1: Do you think they were saving that up for Series 2?
0: The funny thing is that that would have been a bit of a role reversal, I think, because I'm talking again about my background in Glasgow and so on, and also wider Scotland. As far as voting habits were concerned, it tended to be people from Protestant backgrounds were more likely to support the Tories, or as it would be known up here, the Unionists. And people from Catholic backgrounds were more likely to vote Labour. That's not something I've just made up after like a couple of misheard conversations. I mean, that really was the way it was for decades. So it would have been a bit of a surprise if that had been the arrangement, that Mary, the the Catholic, was staunch Tory and Billy was staunch Labour. But I suppose, I mean, it could have been the case. Again, we had a bit of messing around with the political persuasion slash expectations of the characters in Love Thy Neighbour because Eddie is a staunch Labour supporter. And Bill is a Tory, which you might find surprising for 1972. Can I forward another reason why the Whackers wasn't a success? It went out opposite Last of a Summer Wine.
1: So we're into the foggy years.
0: No, we're not. No, we're not into the foggy years. Foggy years are 76, aren't they? No, oh, okay. It's, it's still Meyer, but Last of a Summer Wine going out at 925. So it's got a five-minute head start as well. And it's already established. It's an established success by this point. Is it fair to say that probably about thirty to forty percent of this series takes place in the pub?
1: Yes, I and mean, we—I suppose we learn a little thing about bar prices.
0: Now, I've got to be honest and say that I'm not really a pub goer. I never really have been. The idea that it's the man of the house—he's almost like a giant magnet. He's just drawn to the pub. It's not an alien concept to me, but it's something which I can't really identify with firsthand. But it is a bloody useful device when it comes to sitcoms, isn't it? If you have a show. Okay, let's take, say, the royal family, for instance. If it's all set in the living room, then you need a reason for, say, Joe and Mary from next door to pop round. It needs to be some sort of excuse. Whereas, of course, in the pub, you can have anybody meet anybody at all. And that's always a useful device uh, as far as, say, putting Billy in the path of temptation. When he meets his old cellmate, for example, it would be less likely that he's going to encounter him just about anywhere else but you can just have somebody walk through the bar door and there they are. Okay so I can accept your suggestion that this is a bit of a culture clash because we might be going after traditional ITV audiences and yet we've got all these with it liberated kids in the household and certainly Billy and Mary are not backwards about coming forwards when it comes to you know, all that kind of stuff.
1: That's another thing, yes, as well. Frank discussion about their conjugal enjoyment. At
0: what point then do we get sitcoms which can go out before 9pm but also can be as frank in the discussions of these subjects? doesn't necessarily mean to say that they use the fruity kind of language that we hear in the Whackers, but not really seen much of my family, for example. But I presume that the family in my family, they will discuss things like their kids are growing up too fast and where are they and what are they doing and all that kind of stuff. And I think one of the characters, I think she gets pregnant at some point and becomes a single mother and all that kind of stuff. And one of the sons, I think, comes out later on. So that's all pre-Watershed, BBC One, mainstream sitcom, Sucker 2000. So somewhere between 1975 and 2000, it became acceptable for you to have frank discussion about sexuality and other matters. Can we put a finger on what Trouble happened? in mind. Hey. I had
1: a vasectomy between 7.15 and 7.45 on a Sunday night. I wasn't just doing that to force that in. I was just thinking about one of the issues dealt with in the Whackers when I could find a time of that being dealt with more openly. Well, actually, do you know what? I'm sure that somebody's shouting this right now. Bread. Well, I was thinking about bread because didn't bread go out on Sunday nights? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, pre-Watershed, I think do it was. Do you think
1: it initially starts on Sunday nights when people are a bit more dazed? and Maybe youngsters are meant to be doing their homework and not watching telly. That's only 10 years.
0: Or 11 years, okay. There's only 11 years gap. So I'm just, I'm trying to put in fact, is, is this an 80s thing? Is this what this is? Is this something where, well, we've mentioned before about this idea that Bill Cotton supposedly said to Eric Sykes, we're into alternative comedy now. Which I find very difficult to actually envisage that statement being made by Bill Cotton. But you wouldn't have got the kind of topics that come up in Bread. They don't come up in Terry and June. Now, you can argue this a different type of show to an extent. Maybe something like Butterflies? Again, Carla Lane because Caroline, of course we haven't mentioned her at all but she's a sort of presence throughout all of this because not only did she co-write Summer Bless This House but also she was co-writing The Live of Birds and of course she was a writer of Bread and here she is in 1978 as a writer of Butterflies which is starting to be rather more frank in its discussion about uh, sexuality and all that business <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was trying to think of another word and then I was just doing a I, head was tr- I was trying to work out where you were going, and I was going to help you, and it's like, no, nope, I have no clue.
0: <laughs> so, two years after the Whackers, I know that Butterflies is a very, very different show, uses a very different language, and so on, but it does deal with similar subjects, and yet that isn't seen as something which, okay, I know is mildly controversial and certainly got picked up on, but it wasn't something where controller BBC One rushed to take it off. You certainly did pull last episode of that.
1: Also, how much of this last episode not going out is genuine outcry? Is it just poor ratings or is it just the corporate ethos of the company that made it? Was it a risk and then, you know, this is not what Thames is, A bet? Well, no, I can't because Thames made some (laughs) real.
0: That's a good point, actually, because.
1: But of course, it's ITV, so they're going to be more risk averse anyway. There are commercial considerations.
0: I know that you're not a huge fan of Kenny Everett, but you've just reminded me of something. Thames has a lot of success with Kenny Everett from 1978 onwards until 1981, and then during preparation for the 1981 series, word gets out that the crew, Ken Everett, Bally Cryer, and Ray Cameron, that they've written this sketch about the Snot family based upon characters said Snot. Word came down from above, specifically Philip Jones, who was head of Light Entertainment, that this sketch wasn't to proceed. And Kenny Everett and his colleagues lobbied over this, but they were told this is just not something that Thames will do. This is beneath our standards. And that was what prompted Kenny Everett to go to the BBC for his television work and the snots as a sketch that eventually became the drains and it happened in the BBC but it does raise this issue that perhaps there are certain things that could it be to do with language or just keywords or whatever it is that sometimes it's just no this isn't quite what we want to be associated with
1: there's also the thing that you might have the viewers there but advertisers might not want to advertise in that slot I don't know if in the mid 70s British television was getting that serious about demographics. I know American television would have been, but there is also that to look at. ITV didn't have its whole obsession with ABC ones that it later developed, but it might well have been this, like, no, this is just, we're not even getting the lower middle classes. This is going to be working class only, and even then maybe a subsection.
0: Of course, Vince Powell mentioned Bottle Boys earlier on. That show was often cited as supposedly a turning point in ITV sitcoms. That was supposedly the stage at which they decided, right, we're not going to do this kind of broad free-wall VT comedy anymore, and we're going to go down the road of either having shows without a laugh track, say something like a bit of a do, or adaptations of Radio 4 shows like Up the Garden Path and Second Thoughts and so on, and shows like Surgical Spirit, in the one way targeting the higher end of the, the market. Do you think that there's a class business going on here? Do you think that it's acceptable in the minds of the... I'm not going to overlook the fact that I'm not really comparing like for like, when I'm talking about butterflies. A BBC show doesn't have to worry about appetizers, and the same goes for bread and so on. But is this a case where if discussion of certain topics is coded in middle-class language and middle-class sensibilities, and it's alluded to without actually being in your face, then does that make it more permissible than if joe gladwin just suddenly blots out shortlifter.
1: there's also the spectrum of middle classness there's a reason that when we've been doing our class things don't think they're high-flown enough to call them examinations we did four classes Or we've done three and we're going to do another eventually there's a divide between the lower and upper middle classes and i think you can get by on attracting the upper and lower and the skilled working class. Something like the workers I can actually even see alienating the lower middle class. It's even too vulgar for them, thinking in Ronnie Barker terms. I am vulgar. So there's also partially what will have the greatest reach. Maybe something like surgical spirit is a bit of a loss leader. You are actually going to alienate people below a certain level of self-perception as well as education and income and things like that but it's okay making up for it by having a lot of expensive car commercials in there. It's something I come back to. Everybody's vulgar now. You don't really have particularly snooty programming in the same way. Well,
0: no, it's interesting because I know what you mean, but there do still seem to be standards, seem to be sort of boundaries which you can't cross. It sounds a bit ridiculous, but okay, well, just to give you a daft example, Just a few weeks ago, one of the judges on Strictly got in trouble for saying bollocks. It's not a particularly filthy and upsetting word, is it? But it wasn't acceptable for him to say at seven o'clock on a Saturday night, apparently, because he had to apologise straight away.
1: I suppose another thing is, if Surgical Spirit was being made now, it would be no left track, it would be phony film. I was looking at the streaming services and looking at what they have for British television, and all of the little avatars, icons, things that they have to just give you an image, one image to represent the show, they all look like lifestyle accessories rather than TV shows. And they're talked about in those terms. I know, I am one of those people who is just quite easily infuriated by the suggestion that the golden age is now, this attempt to draw a line under television history and say everything before this point was inferior not even saying look things are good now because we have built on the hard work of the people before us was that thing some guardian thing had a while ago but even something like smiley's people and tinker Tailor soldier spy didn't have the vision television requires now what
0: i saw a really really good tweet i think it was from a guy called moonless on twitter and he was talking about exactly that kind of snobbery and he signed it off with the normal kind of guardian response truncated into a single sentence, but you know, House of Cards, etc. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's it, really, isn't it? House of Cards. There's game a of writer called
1: Leonard Pierce, Randa. spelled differently. Yes, he. No, he does get that. Yes, he does get people saying that to him. And he said, "Look, if your discussion about now being the golden age of television involves anything other than there's lots of good programs being made now, then shut up." <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. I can't remember exactly what was said. But that claim that more is being done, more is being said, I think less is being said.
0: Well, this is getting miles away from the topic in hand, but... Just well, I'm just to...
1: thinking, call the Whackers. Imagine exporting the Whackers. Get a load of that! Okay, no, I just want to bring this up as a, a
0: talking point. I don't really have an, a definitive answer to this. I not have any answer to this, or well otherwise. But I think it's worth just throwing in there for the discussion. If you've never heard it, there's a really, really good podcast from America called Stew's Show. And if you Google it and you find the podcast on Thanksgiving Eve this year, part of the discussion in there, I was talking about streaming services and how you know the services like Netflix and Amazon and so on, they've made a bit of a thing recently about going after shows which have been dropped by the networks, as in things like Ripper Street and Arrested Development, Community, things like that. They're now starting to see whether this is going to pay off or not, because the thing that all those shows have got in common was that they were all cancelled by standard traditional networks. Now, I'm just wondering about the economics of television in the future, because we're talking about the Whackers might be attracting... Certainly if the Whackers had been 10 years later, then somebody would have just said straight away, oh, this is attracting the wrong sort of audience. This is, this is not the the rugby audience that we're looking for. Now, with television going forward, where you're paying your subscription fee and so on, do you still have quite the same necessity to try and target particular demographics? Because if the Whackers and Surgical Spirit are both paying their way in terms of driving subscriptions, then does it matter what particular part of the community that they're appealing to? I guess we're some way away, particularly in Britain, of finding the answer to that.
1: But then you get into the risk of narrow casting.
0: But we have that already, don't we?
1: Yeah, it's a problem. It's not that I want to go back to three channels and closing down at 20 past midnight and starting at 10am. And part of me is really just turned off by the rhetoric around television now. I can like new music. And I'm not made to feel bad for having old music. You never get people going, oh, I was just listening to The Kinks. Oh dear, it's not, not quite up to modern production standards, is it? What? No, nobody does that. And so uh, there's possibly a lot of things I would like that I'm not watching because they feel to me like the, they've been written around the press release. That before I even get to the television programme, before I even get to seeing a minute of it, I've seen the think pieces that are talking about how just incredibly important All of this stuff is, and the journalist who's writing is, therefore, by extension, incredibly important. I shouldn't use the term metropolitan elite. Again, this whole shift, though, that to be in the media now, you have to maybe have a bit more of a disposable income because you'd be doing more unpaid internships, and we get a self-selecting group who all talk in the same way. And we're not getting our whackers.
0: Well, I'm sort of guilty of referring to it all through the prism of the Guardian. I just sort of associate all that kind of toss, you know, those kind of articles and what have you and clickbait pieces that are spread all over Twitter. I just always think, oh, what's the Guardian up to today? And if I want to be really nasty about it, in pure capitalist economic terms, the Guardian loses a million pounds a week. So perhaps those views are not shared by the majority of people out there. As far as these... Pieces are concerned, you got know, this whole sort of, oh, well, everything's just been a rehearsal for 2015, way Kevin Spacey, House of Cars, new series coming on, so on. What do you think those people would have said about Still Open All hours before it came back? What do you think that they would have said in terms of its chances of success? I suspect that the whole lot of them would have said, oh, don't be ridiculous, you can't bring back a throwback like that, 30 years old, what, corner shops? No. Still Open All hours gets 8 million viewers on occasion. Which, in television terms, in 2015, is bloody amazing.
1: It can't just be the older. Viewers no, as it can't. Well. No, it's exactly, car- exactly. There's like a lost society <laughs> inside society that's not really talked about. They might be talked to. Their prejudices might be stalked or assumed as well. There've got to be people in this unidentified demographic who don't have all the automatic reactions that are assumed of them by the non centre-left press. Let's write a sitcom about them. Let's write a sitcom about the lost society. <laughs> yes.
0: I don't want to misquote him, but I think it was Gareth Roberts on Twitter, the writer. I think he was reacting to one of those you know, clip shows recently. And he put it very nice in response to all this talk about how we've advanced as a society and so on in 30 or 40 years and so on. And I think the gist of what he'd said on there, that I don't have it in front of me, was it's not society which has changed so dramatically in the past 30, 40 years. It's television. And I think there's probably a lot of truth to that. I mean, television's not really been the same in the UK. I was actually thinking about this the other day. I was thinking, when did television in the UK actually turn to shit? <laughs> I was trying to put, like, a precise date on it.
1: You know what it was for me? I can't remember the year. There was a trailer for forthcoming comedy on BBC Two. I was voiced over by Stephen Fry, and at the end, there were a bunch of cows in a field. I just went, new for you, on two. I thought, I don't like that. <laughs> i do not show sure I related to any of the clips they showed either, but just like, that just feels like empty, studenty, whimsy. It was a shock to me. To, <laughs> I'm watching TV and I'm not enjoying it. I'm not even bored in a pleasant way. The thing is, is I was probably not even 20 yet. <laughs> So, it's one thing to say, oh, yeah, I'm so old, and oh. certainly by the time I was 25, I just felt like I was no longer welcome at the television party.
0: My enjoyment of the snooker, because when we're recording this, the snooker's on BBC all week.
1: I do actually think
0: that the snooker on the BBC is one of the last great tenants of civilization because it's lovely and calm and quiet and there's no shouting noises in it, and if so much as somebody coughs too loudly, they get told off by the referee, things like that, you know? And I'm watching this last night, and then suddenly my enjoyment of this is punctured right at the end by a trailer for Russell Howard's Good News, which <laughs> is a refugee from the soon-to-be online-only BBC3, so it's now found at on BBC2. And I've got the sound off, and I'm looking at this, and I'm thinking, what is this? What am I looking at? Now, that's a ridiculous response from me, because I know it's not for me. I know I'm not the demographic who's going to watch that, I know that. But at the same time, part of me's thinking, what oh, no, and BBC thought that that was going to appeal to the snooker-watching audience at half-past midnight? God's sake. Put on a Lauren Hardy film. That's what we would have wanted at half-past midnight on a Saturday night after the snooker. Anyway, I think we've possibly got slightly off-topic. <laughs>
1: well, the Weckers... <laughs> Didn't live up to its bad reputation. It had a lot of heart, and it had some interesting things to say about the way society was changing in the mid-70s, a little bit dependent on box-standard innuendo.
0: Next week, it'll be Jaffa Cake's turn. What are we talking about in the wild world of all things Christmassy?
1: Next week on Jaffa Cake's Proust, we will be spending three Christmas nights with the stars.
0: And of course, next time on the sitcom club, it's going to be Christmas, isn't it? Gonna slightly keep it under wraps for now. It's gonna be something a bit different.
1: Well, next time on the sitcom club, it's the last regular It is.
0: It's I mean this has actually been sort of, I suppose you could say the last regular sitcom club type discussion in the series because our Christmas special is gonna be special. Exactly as a Christmas special should be. It's gonna be all sort of you know, a little bit different. We're not gonna go to Spain, as apparently all sitcom episodes of <laughs> <at> Christmas do. <laughs>
1: Just before we go, do you want to outline? That was me complaining, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, so, okay, the other day I'd stumbled across an episode of Loveline Neighbour, which appears to have all the tropes of a sitcom film, but in a regular 25-minute episode. They decide to go on holiday, they go on holiday, they get on the plane, they actually arrive, they have the holiday, Eddie Booth gets stuck in Spanish jail. So, everything you'd have in 90 minutes, they had in 25. And I sent you this on IMDB, and there was a comment there, Did it say, Mark Gatiss has previously commented on the suggestion, or the fact rather, all sitcom spin-off movies end up with the characters going to Spain, and your response was? Name three. (laughs) (laughs) Are you being served? Yes, I'll give you that one. I am genuinely thinking of others.
1: The duty-free Christmas special that's all on film does not count.
0: (laughs) (laughs) If you're looking for an escape from the bog-standard Christmas fair... This Christmas Day, ITV free, carry on day, all day, fantastic. That is what Christmas is all about. If you have anything that you would like to make or do, you can tweet us at The Sitcom Club. You can find us on Facebook as The Sitcom Club. We are on the internet at sitcomclub.com and you can find all of our previous editions. And really
1: don't expect a reply after next time. (laughs) And eventually we're going to have to start moving people across to our other Twitter account. So keep watching the Sitcom Club Twitter account for that.
0: We are now approaching, I think I'm right in saying that this is actually the 98th podcast that we have done. So when we do conclude at the end of the year, we'll have over 100 podcasts in the archive. You can find them all at podnos.com. So in the meantime, I'm going to have an iced mince pie.
1: I'm going to have some eggnog, maybe with a little bit of brandy in it.
0: And we will be back in two weeks with the Silicon Club and we'll be back in one week from now with Jaffa Cakes for Proust.